Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at The Bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. On the 29th of November 2019, Usman Khan attacked and killed Saskia Jones and Jack Merritt at Fishmongers Hall in London, and was later shot dead by police on London Bridge. Jones and Merritt were involved in a prison education programme in which Khan had participated. All three had gathered at an event that day to mark five years of the programme. Preeti Taneja also worked on that programme as a teacher of creative writing in prisons. Jack Merritt oversaw her work. Khan was one of her students. Aftermath is Taneja's attempt to come to an understanding of these events, both how they called into question what had come before and the grief and trauma they engendered. What makes Aftermath so extraordinary is not so much the courage it must have taken to face such actions again, but the refusal to seek solace in the tropes and cliches, the forms and formulas that our systems, of life but also of literature, have developed to process moments like these. Indeed, not only does Taneja reject such constructions, She explicitly seeks to dismantle them, however painful what she uncovers can be, however exposed it leaves her. What results is an extraordinary, intense and radical meditation on terror, on trauma, on prisons, on race, on systems, on history and on writing itself. Pretty Taneja, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, Whenever I interview writers, I'm very conscious of trying to avoid questions that essentially require my interlocutor to, to rewrite or re-express um, the thoughts and ideas in their books. Um, and I think in the case of Aftermath, I'm particularly conscious of this because the book is not just so precise in the way it tackles its subject, but every chapter, every sentence, every word is clearly so hard won. Um, so with that in mind, and in kind of an attempt to avoid that particular pitfall, I'd like to begin by asking about the the difficulty you faced, not just in writing this book in a way that you would find um, intellectually, morally, emotionally satisfactory. Did a lot of the thinking take place on off the page before you started writing? Um, or was it something that came through sort of specifically in the in the drafting and the the redrafting of the, of the sentences themselves. Thank you so much for the care you're taking with this, Adam. I think that there is an argument to be made um, which you're making in practice for criticism and um, conversations about literature as a form of care and communi- making of community where we don't feel like these types of podcasts or book events turn into sort of interrogations when a book has already been written. Um, And you're right, like a lot of, uh, every single word in the book is extremely hard one. 
um, the complexity that I had to hold when I was working on this had so many different facets. It had to do with mm. my relationship to fiction writing and teaching of it, mm-hmm. the, the importance placed on education, in this case, the myths of elite institutions and what success means, the narratives around redemption and heroes and prisons um, that confuse so many people who are involved. Um, and trying to find my way back to a position of knowing that terrorist violence or violence on its own comes mm-hmm. out of a context. And it's mm. on it was on me in a way because I was implicated in two ways, both grieving for people I had known who, you know, were the victims of violence in on that day, Jack and Saskia, um, and the perpetrator of that violence, who I knew in a very different context as a as a mm-hmm. as a training writer. Um, how to do justice to all of that. So yes, I suppose I was constantly thinking about it in some really difficult and profound ways. Like if you asked my partner who I live with um, what it was like for him to be around me working on this book, he probably would have said that not only was the entire city that we were in lockdown, the silence of 2020, but I was silent too. Mm. Because the whole time I was just thinking and thinking and thinking and processing. But also every day I was writing um, sections of this book, just approaching that complexity from all its different sides often with the same result so there is a there is a feeling i think that sometimes the sections of the book feel repetitive like coming at a problem the same problems with different from different angles over and over Mm. and that's basically what i was doing a lot of the thinking did happen on the page and i write quite slowly so i'm a i draft and draft and draft One um one thing that um becomes clear quite quickly in aftermath, and it, it it feeds into what you were just saying then about the sort of the you know writing in the early months of 2020, is that this is something which you started pretty soon after the events. I mean, this was sort of either there wasn't a period of um you know, several years for you to sort of emotionally, psychologically, intellectually process what had happened. You it seemed almost that your sort of your your instinct was to to deal with this through writing, and yet what we find at the beginning, particularly, is what might be described as a loss of faith in in writing, in a sense, in that sort of you know I think a lot of us who work in the book world or who work with words can sometimes lazily think of them. Think of writing as an inherent good, in a sense, and that is something which you clearly were struggling with uh, in the uh, in the in the early months of writing this book. That is absolutely right. I mean, on the one hand, this was a form of survival for me to write this straight away. Um, I had to turn to the ways I've always used to deal with trauma and things that I find difficult, which is to write, even mm-hmm. if it's for, just for me. Um, and that happened very quickly, almost as soon as we knew the facts of the event, I began to try to work out what was happening around me 
in Cambridge, where I lived at the time, the first time I had been in this in in this kind of maelstrom of collective grief as a phenomenon, it became I was I had that moment where, as a writer, you're you're you're, you're so interested in what you can see and experience happening around you, even while you also know that you're inside it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to try to work on that, and then as I as I tangled away at that it became more and more clear that this was also something that had I had to think through a lot a lot more deeply mm. and I had to do that but this loss of faith was very real mm. um I found myself completely unable to f- turn to the other writers the poets um mm. philosophers and literary texts which perhaps we turn to in times of great need because we can extract quotations or whatever that give us that glimmer of hope that you know because this event was so traumatic and so specific and so it just was two weeks before a very very bitter general election Mm -hmm. took place um its details were so extraordinary that someone who had who had been in prison and been helped by this program had gone to this event that he had been incarcerated before for terrorist-related mm-hmm. offences. He was under surveillance, huge amounts mm-hmm. of licence conditions, and he was allowed by the structures of power, MI5 and the Home Office, probation, police, prison, so on, because of the law of Cambridge University, to go to London take part, and the fact he was writing, take part mm-hmm. in this event where he committed an awful violence and was killed. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know... That is an event outside the usual poets' remit of social yeah. justice, civil rights struggle, the, the kind of words that we get from Black American feminist writers, mm-hmm. women of colour, dealing with very different sets of circumstances. And I felt like I'd lost the right to take it to them. Yeah. Um, I, just, I just felt lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and another way that that loss seems to manifest itself as in the kind of what might be called the sort of the writer's toolbox as well. Uh, there's a moment where you say there is no syntax or simile to do justice to this, no metaphor. And so sort of like not only is it a case of um, sort of uh, not knowing if sort of writing is the, the you know, if, if you're going to be able to do it, of just not knowing if actually writing is the, the means by which such a such an event, such a trauma, should be apprehended, um, and it could because if it doesn't have the tools, maybe approaching it with you know sort of with, with the clumsy tools one does have would be potentially to 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 do more damage and to do more violence uh, to the situation. That's absolutely right because narrative has a structure that we're all taught mm. is the right way to tell a story. But that is a very dangerous myth because it's often this kind of hero's journey. And yeah. there was no such thing in this case. But people wanted to believe that really strongly because it's got this archetypal grip on our imaginations. Um, and so for me, this became about using the only tools I had as a writer, not a lawyer or a criminologist or an investigative reporter or a journalist or anything like that, to break down the function of narrative in this case. Mm-hmm. and pull apart the craft tools I had actually taught in the prison to this person and see uh-huh. what I could make from that um, and question this idea which you referred to, which we just blithely accept too often, that somehow if you make art, you're a good person. 
and that all writing a book itself is a thing of value. Of course it is, but that doesn't mean what's in it can't do harm. It can. It's such, again, a pervasive narrative myth. Well, sticking with the, these narrative myths, like I, there's a term that you use, and forgive me, I'm not sure if it's uh, your, it's, if it's your term or if it's a, a term which, um, which sort of exists in criticism. But it's, it seemed really pertinent at the moment. You talk about the um, the Eurocentric sublime, um, and that seemed to suddenly, in some way, for me, sort of encapsulate how we often approach these sort of situations as you say like through both this idea of the the hero's journey as it sort of has been extracted from you know greek myths and and, and the like but yeah exactly but also through the yeah the sort of christianity and i, I i'm just curious is this sort of yeah this this concept of the eurocentric sublime is that one of the things that for you is sort of hobbling let's say a sort of a, an authentic interaction with the, the fact and the uh the impact of of these events yes i mean you know you've picked up on this term and it really is a term which i think so nicely puts its finger on the kind of prevailing culture um which creates a subclass of black and brown people in white society, majority white societies who are curated via firstly via immigration rules and then mm-hmm. socioeconomic conditions to live under the surface of everybody else's lives. And out of that, some people get through the gates of this and learn its language, mm-hmm. become successful in their own ways within it, and they either assimilate so so fantastically well that they become the fascist home secretaries of this world, <laughs> or they become, you know, writers with platforms like like me. It's like very few people who get to those places. And there's an equally very few handful of people who fall prey to converse ideologies. Mm-hmm. And just, it's a downward spiral into a kind of way of finding self-expression through something that fills the vacuum of always being told you are not human you're not Mm -hmm. allowed into this conversation about what it means to be human your role is as a piece of economic value to service a kind of culture this eurocentric sublime and -hmm. it's extremely dangerous and it's completely immoral Mm. um and it wasn't just that you know it's very difficult for people to think because there's always this yes, but he did kill two people mm-hmm. and possibly wanted to do that damage to even more people if a few a few other men hadn't been there and, and tackled him and the police and so on and so on. And that sort of freezes our imaginations. It rushes through our systems. Mm-hmm. Like this adrenaline of like, you know, it's so awful. But where did it come from? How was it made? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, thinking about that, and knowing that structure of harm, which we call the school to prison pipeline, and how it disproportionately mm-hmm. affects young black men, young Muslim men, um, young brown men in this country, disappears them off from school exclusion to prison, off in, onto the streets, into a punitive carceral stop and search policy, which disproportionately affects them, and just sweeps them into prison. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes logical sense to us. 
And so we must hold on to that logic that we know that happens and say, okay, well, who is the human that's gone through that and what is going to happen next? I'm interested in that that sort of that cognitive dissonance, I guess, because I think I think what what you've just described about the sort of like you know asking why these things happen, how these things happen, it's not that that's not something which is a given lip service to in in our societies. Like I think because sort of every every government I think sort of in my lifetime has at least sort of expressed an interest in in addressing the sort of you know understanding and addressing the sort of the systemic things that lead to lead, lead, lead to the things you've just described and yet that does seem to be sort of directly sort of overridden by uh i guess is it what is it is it the is it the the trauma of the of the event is it the um the sort of the graspability of the the narrative of like one person kills two people is much easier to understand in the kind of the frameworks that we constructed than the much more sort of complex, much more kind of spidering um, story of sort of figuring out exactly how these things come to pass. Um, Systemic harm is something we all live in. The violence of systemic harm affects everyone, all of us. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, um, people are becoming in, in the UK alive to that because the cost of living is going up because the cost of energy is going up, these basics that are going to push millions of people further into poverty, and those who are already poor are going to become even poorer. And we also Mm -hmm. already know that majority in this country of those people in the working class are black and brown communities. What happens next? Mm -hmm. You know, so for me, (laughs) um, I don't agree that people in power have thought about how to address these kind of structural inequalities because what I'm seeing from the current UK government is the exact opposite. They just want to make it worse with policy Uh and you can't even gather on the street and protest that because they're going to criminalise protest too. I mean, these are very serious legislative agendas um, of prison expansion ultimately, which are linked to Mm -hmm. the real material expansion of prisons. Someone has to fill those things. So the policy and the conditions of cruelty are being created in our cities, um, in our country, through law, and through practice, mm-hmm. that's going to keep a certain amount of people making money and the rest um, in increasing forms of, of desperation. Um, you know, you don't have to be very clever <laughs> to see <laughs> outcomes here, which we can, which when they end up happening, we can say, oh, no, this was awful. But I, but I also think it's important to say that it's that it's driven by in the UK a hugely pervasive narrative of good versus evil that goes all the way mm-hmm. back through our histories and our myths and our cultures and strategies, and that evil has been f- sort of the finger is pointed over and over through policy and so on and interventions at Muslims in mm-hmm. Britain, and that's historic. One thing um, uh, that, that that you do with the book, there's a, a sort of a way to sort of to sort of the, to push against that that narrative is, as I said in the introduction, the sort of a, it's an attempt to dismantle. And one thing that really interested me was the way that you attempted to sort of dismantle your position in it, because obviously, as somebody who sort of grew up within that system, you are in certain ways going to be as susceptible to to these narratives as, or not maybe not as susceptible, but sort of in some ways susceptible to the narratives as any anybody else in, in society. And one of the ways that you did that, and that I found really interesting and really powerful in Aftermath, is the, sh- the different pronouns you use to 
to talk about yourself. So there is there is the I, there is the the she, and if I if I remember it rightly, the I think you I think you use the the second person plural at the moment yeah. as well. And there's this sort of this attempt to sort of to to understand, I suppose, in a way, your position, your sort of point in this um, in this structure. I think ethically, it's very important for my um, politics um, and my activism to always be extremely um, careful about how I position myself and how I understand that mm-hmm. position, and then from there be, be the activist. And I want mm-hmm. to do that aesthetically in the text as well. So I grew up in a sort of British Asian brackets Indian, um, uh-huh. according to the censor, which makes me sort of non I'm not Muslim um I'm, and I grew up in a sort of middle class environment um mm-hmm. small town outside London um commute belt this you know it's a very nice place very leafy um and I think rising through my understanding of what that meant as a young person who was surrounded by whiteness all of the time but always understood that she was not that. Mm-hmm. And coming from a household with Indian language, music, food, my mother wore her sari and her silver kameez to work where she ran, her, she ran her own business. Every day, she never relinquished the things that made her South Asian first-generation mm-hmm. Indian woman. So she and my father created this environment of cultural understanding at home that never, I never found anywhere else outside or endorsed at school, except through Exotica, Exotica the odd day of whatever celebration. Mm-hmm. And then going further into those very white elite spaces of Cambridge University and so on as a teacher, as so an mm-hmm. undergraduate, and then later on as a, as a supervisor and running the writing program. And there's a certain kind of burden that comes with that where you mm-hmm. are incredibly vulnerable to politics of gratitude, mm-hmm. always being made to feel great, that you have to feel grateful for being allowed into the room. And then the attacks that come at you to say, oh, you know, you're the zeitgeist or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or right. you've only achieved what you have because you're the token person. But mm-hmm. what that does to the inside of somebody's psyche is that it, can, it makes this resistance Mm-hmm. It's 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 like a kind of iron skeleton of resistance because you know that narrative is wrong. And I absolutely mm-hmm. know that if I'm the token person there, I'm not the problem. Right. And I also have this responsibility to change the picture. Mm-hmm. And I will use the tools that I have gained from that system to do that with everything I have, whether it's by teaching writing in prisons, which are disproportionately full of South Asian and black people, Mm. or deconstructing through language in a literary way, in a highly literary way, to show those people that, you know, monsters can learn and speak in ways um i'm not going to monster myself um but you get what i'm saying right yeah 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 i mean one of the one of the um ways in which i think that's particularly effective is with this concept um and it's going to be i'm going to 
it's going to be difficult to express uh, orally because you have to see it on the page, but the, of the atrocity which we find in um, in aftermath. So this is written for our listeners: A T R O dash city C I T Y. So this sort of almost sort of creating, uh, sort of dismantling the idea and the concept of atrocity and rebuilding it as almost like a, a sort of a, a physical or metaphysical space in which some of the ideas that you are engaged with and dealing with in the book can kind of exist and find a certain sort of, um, I suppose, a sort of a clearer expression than they might find when positioned in the sort of the undeconstructed uh, narrative of the of the Eurocentric um, sublime. And what this put me in mind of when I was reading it, because obviously uh, Cambridge comes up quite a lot in this book and uh, obviously a prison on the outside of on the outskirts of Cambridge, put me in mind of the distinction that is often made in Oxford and Cambridge of the the town and the gown, like this kind of this idea of these kind of two stratas of society living essentially in the same physical space, but occupying very different spaces of of, of intellect, of wealth, of resources, of of things like that. And that sort of in, in some way that idea of the town and the gown seemed quite connected to this figure of the atrocity that you that you created yeah i think you're right and i think you know your word stratification is really important one for us to pick up on um and this links to what i was saying um previously because you know my positionality south asian indian british person and um my commitment to change to intervening through that position in this um landscape in which british muslims of color south asian muslims of color with are so completely denigrated by stratification. Mm -hmm. And it isn't, you know, innate. It's immigration policy curated over generations, but Mm -hmm. it has its roots in divine rule. Mm -hmm. And it has its roots in empire, which took place in in India, this undivided subcontinent, where both my family and Usman Khan's family originally came from. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, as immigrant families into this country with very different prospects from the outset. Mm. So I have to think about that. My trajectory is a kind of becoming a Cambridge student and then a lecturer um, in different universities and a writer and, and so with a platform. And here's downwards into prison. Like that is uh, India, Pakistan with Kashmir as a fla- un- unknown flashpoint um, mm-hmm. issue to me. That's how we are connected. Um it's a stratified, very carefully curated, uh, purposeful city. When I say city, I mean country, bordered, boundaried, and so on, um, that we live in. And, you know, we don't, in our education systems, properly teach that historical damage. So that mm-hmm. when these events occur, they seem to come out of nowhere because all of... And it's easy then to say, these people are innately violent, these people are innately stupid, because there's no context. You yeah. know, these people are innately the leaders of this world. Um, you know, white supremacy thrives mm-hmm. on ignorance, and ignorance is curated. Yes. I'd like to um to come to the the, the subject of prisons because um there's a moment where you uh, you're writing. I think it's when uh, you're talking about um, the Margaret Atwood book, um, Hagsey, where, where you say like so much of the kind of cultural understanding we have of prison comes from art and media 
created by people who have little or often no knowledge or no experience, no sort of direct um, connection to um, to 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 the to the prison environment itself, and and that seemed to me a very a very important point to underline. Yeah, I think the literary has a role to play in how we approach um, our research and our otherness. Um, obviously, there are many writers who want to write about social um, conditions, and that includes writing about prisons. Margaret Atwood did research going into prison category, mid 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 like not life sent long and life sentence, um, high security. Um, she talked to people who taught taught in prisons, and you know she did the novelist work. But did she do the novelist work? What is our role as writers in society writing books which we want millions of readers when we have that kind of platform to read and be entertained by in a capitalist system? It's a product, her novel, for a readership. It's $12.99 in Waterstones, you know. Um, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the reach that she has is, of course, enormous. And so for me to, to, to sort of, for, for a person like to, to voice people who are incarcerated based on that kind of research, I feel very conflicted about that. And it was a question I had to think about too. When I'm teaching writing in prison, what am I there for? I'm there to teach writing in prison. I'm not there to take people's life stories when they don't have access to those channels themselves and make my name off them, no. Even if I do that in a fictional way, um, that's not how I see my activism in any way. Um, and I want a better literary life. I want a better literature for that. I think form has a role to play in that. Um, what do we think about people who have committed violence, great violence, that, that we find so shocking and abhorrent on an individual level, being able to write articles or books or whatever in national newspapers and so on and so on? Okay, flip the question. Is it worse if you're a prime minister pressing the button, dropping a drone, and you have that power to kill millions without keeping getting your hands actually dirty because you believe that they, because you can, essentially, because you can. Right? So these are complex moral questions that literature has to think with and through. And as for the thing about writing in prison, like, I... I'm not conflicted about the value that teaching writing in prison does for people who take those courses because I've seen it myself. What I was, what came out of this case though, was who the, the question of, yes, it's good, but who is it good for? If the good is for the reputation of the prison, for the reputation of the people running the programme, then it's not the good that is the good that happens when somebody, whoever they are, whichever circumstance they're in, sits down with someone next to them in a, in, and faces the blank page with a pen and says, right, this is how to make it work. Get your intellect involved in a process that takes you away for a while from whatever it else is that is in your life. And that exercise of process has value to the soul, it does. 
because for a while it allows your brain to engage in craft making that's a fundamental expression of being human that is for me what writing teaching writing in prison is for I mean, people don't really think too hard about long and life sentences and the realities of what that looks like. What are those people meant to do all day? <laughs> Four years. What are they meant to do? In that sense, writing allows that kind of respite. Then there's the question that people find really difficult. Should people who have committed violence have that respite? Right. And that sort of feeds into the um the question of in a sense like what prison is for in fact like why why do we have prison and it seems to me in a sense it's never something which we are able to answer as society because i think we're we're quite confused on the issue ourselves because i think there seem there seems to be maybe i don't know three three reasons for um for incarceration that are often given and they never really sit well with each other there's either uh rehabilitation which is i think the one that is sort of is sort of most trumpeted but probably least uh <laughs> least realized in um in the systems that we have then there's i guess sort of uh protection sort of you know these are dangerous people need to be removed from from society but then it gets into questions of sort of uh a question of what you know what what constitutes danger and then the third one is revenge i think and i think that is the one which is least perhaps least spoken about but is probably one of the sort of the the what that's given most sort of uh, most precedence in our systems it's like you know you hit society we're hitting you back and there seems to be this kind of this triangulation between the, the, these sort of three professed or unprofessed aims means that the systems that we have are just sort of utterly uh, dysfunctional. Yeah, you know, I mean, for me, we need to always bring this back to the carceral capitalism question. Mm-hmm. Who's making money out of prison? Where does that origin to, to punish those people who, you know, prison arose in, in, in the, as, a, as a way of kind of answering the question of poverty their forms of workhouses originally in mm-hmm. the West. So the link between classist society and economic structures and the, the organization of prison at the bottom of that society that's meant at the at one level to catch a lot of people in a certain spiral of harm are very real, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a racist element to it too. So this racial carceral capitalism which is at work and is the kind of blueprint and blood of the system is really what prison is for. Mm-hmm. It's part of this curation that I'm talking about. It doesn't, in the main, make people any safer. It mm-hmm. separates families from each other. It, a person who's been in prison, a person with a relative in prison is, is more likely to end up in prison themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's a punishment for many different things, but the small number of people who go to high security prison for committing awful violence, which gets magnified in the newspapers, is, I mean, 
is is a question people have to wrestle with. But we don't want to say at that point that anybody was born to do that or born that way. And if they were, why isn't our society organized to keep them safe before they end up doing those things or keep mm-hmm. victims safe before they end up becoming um, falling prey to that harm? Those are the questions we need to be focusing on when we think about abolition, when we think about, you know, how we can deconstruct the way that this world is. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think one thing that becomes clear while reading Aftermath is that um, in order to, um, to understand how such a world would look, uh, the work of deconstruction of our narratives, as we already discussed, needs to, needs to take place. I mean, at the moment you write that, you know, though we struggle to imagine a world without prisons in all forms we must try and i think it's i think there's definitely something to that that sort of you know you present people with the idea of uh a prison abolition or in a similar way to the idea of um, defunding the police and these institutions occupy such a sort of um ponderous position in our in the sort of our inherited idea of what a society is and how it's constructed that if we don't do the work of imagining, of deconstructing and imagining something different, ab- the idea of abolition or the idea of defunding will just leave what is essentially a sort of a void, a kind of a black hole in this kind of the this scaffold we have of of society. So, yeah. So, so there seems to be so much work to be done in sort of, I guess, deconstructing that scaffold in order to allow this other world without prisons to to come into being. Yeah, that's terrifying for most people because of the myth of police as the protective factor. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a horrible um, traumatic event that took place yesterday in New York on the subway. Mm. And um, in American language, is very far advanced. American thinking about abolition and prison um, and incarceration, carceral capitalism and its racial origins um, linked to transatlantic slavery is so far advanced compared to how we allow ourselves to think about it in the UK. Again, a very, very careful mm. choice has been made to say, look over there. Um, right. They're worse over there, but, you know, while we're quickly disappearing people to black sites and so on, or into high security when, you know, the system itself is very, very unjust. Um, and Americans, um, think and write about what happens after events like this and they have this great word copper like it's like cop and propaganda right copaganda copaganda <laughs> where these events are used to shore up a narrative that we have to believe in the heroes that are the police they're the only thing mm. that can protect us they need to be armed we need increasing surveillance we need da, 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 da. we need we need to live in a prison like a city that also mm. has prisons in it. And, if, you know, there's a beautiful quote in the book from a poet who's the current San Francisco poet laureate, John Carlisle Martin. Mm. And, you know, if, if it has a prison, it's not a city, it's a prison. Mm. Um, and that creep of surveillance and so on that's shored up by these kinds of events. But, again, who are they going to criminalise first mm. and most with the systems of power that we have? What damage is that going to do down the line to generations of communities. Um, In the UK, we've seen this through the rise of the prevent agenda, which has infiltrated 
demonize Muslims in communities, um, pulling apart structures of safety that were done through kinship lines, creating this mm-hmm. culture of fear, climate of fear, in which school teachers are kind of referring four-year-olds to police because mm. they tried to write cucumber and the teacher had cooker bomb. Right. You know, it's absolutely crazy, the paranoia um, that exists and um, when those things start to creep into our psyches and also the mm. divorce from trust that happens inside communities. Um, divorce from, it becomes a kind of divorce from the things that we used to hold dear, like the ability to express faith in public, the ability mm. to want to, to not feel like somehow because you have a certain way of being in the world, you have to hide that. And that is creating psychological damage that's only going to have ripple effects. It's, you know, I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm scaremongering because I'm actually not. I'm legitimately telling you what is happening Mm -hmm. and how I've seen it happen. How, I mean, writers I know are writing about it in sociological texts and so on. I happen to have approached it through the lens of this event, which I had to understand the context of in order to move on with my own activism. Mm -hmm. On, on on that subject of sort of your um, sort of specific engagement with it, you use a very interesting term, uh, which is disenfranchised grief, um, and that that struck me as something which is very rarely sort of given voice to. That sort of in between state of of grief of trauma is something which I think. A lot of people experience, probably most people experience with events like this to differing degrees. So I think back to how things were in Paris um, after the, uh, the, the Bataclan attacks. We're very bad and very ill-equipped at dealing with this kind of um, liminal position, I think. And yet at the same time, it's something which, as I said, we... we most of us, particularly most of us who've lived in cities which have been um, been been through events like this, have experienced in some in some way. Yeah, what you're talking about is our complete un- inability culturally to think through proximity to violence, and mm. um, you know, I don't think that any of us, as you say, living in cities, are immune from this. We live with proximity to violence from the state and individuals all the time. And women, Mm -hmm. women of color, live with this from a very young age, just even, you know, the intervention of walking down the street and being whistled at, or, you know, the sexual approach of men who are predators, um, they think, oh, it's doing no harm. But of course it's doing harm because it impinges on Mm -hmm. your dignity as a body in the world. And you learn from a young age how to defend yourself. Um, mm. or not from that or you learn to hunch your shoulders or whatever like the proximity we live with to violence is so under recognized and when something happens which is so extreme um, for me that really just became what disenfranchised me from um, a sense of having the right to grieve in the same way as those who mm. only knew Jack or only knew Saskia because I knew mm. the perpetrator and I had taught him in some ways something that was so central to this case, the narrative, the fiction, the craft, and so on. Um, And I had to really wrestle with that and work out ways to both honour the lives of those who were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, 
And um, the experience that I had, um, which was very real, and, and hundreds of people who took part in those courses will will say this, that was good. Mm. Um, which I also felt very separated from by this violence um, on that day for a while. Um, and what we, I think we need is to be more honest about what that proximity does to us and mm. what we can do to make ourselves safe that involves more care and mutuality mm-hmm. of understanding and community and before the state has to intervene mm-hmm. or uses its excuse as a safe maker to mm-hmm. increasingly demonize a certain group of people. It seems to me that what's um, at the heart of this, in a way, is this idea which you, you mentioned a moment ago and which is, is sort of a, a repeated refrain in the book, is this idea of trust. Um, and in fact, at the moment, you even um, term it uh, radical trust, because it's, it, it seems that so many of these these structures and these, these systems we that we've been discussing, whether that be um, you know the governments or or prisons or universities or the way that you know the, the societies operated, seem almost sort of structured around a lack of trust. You know, they're sort of they're, they're about sort of protecting against those moments when when trust is violated, and it seems to me from from aftermath that the the source of hope for you, if there is one, comes from the potential that the that, that we all have to to sort of to to take that step and to sort of to to decide in a sense to to trust one another. Yeah, I mean, in this case, it's quite difficult to talk about that because so many things went happened in order for this event to happen on that day. And a lot of the inquests focused on, you know, why wasn't there a search mechanism going into Fishmongers Hall? Why mm-hmm. an MI5 was involved in allowing Usman Khan to travel to London that day? They knew he might be planning something and they just wanted to see what he would do. Um, you know, there was no way. He wasn't even allowed mm-hmm. to get on a train without someone approving that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... But in in the majority of our lives, what do we do when we wake up in the morning and we step onto the street? We trust that we're going to come home that night. Mm. We go through our public spaces. We interact with people every level from people who ride the metro, drive the metro, um, teach alongside us, et cetera, et cetera, work alongside us in the next cubicle. And all we know is the narratives that we making our heads about them and the stories they tell us about themselves. And we have to find ways to live with that. Mm. There is an extraordinarily dense web of psychological things going on there. So, you know, it's a ve- and it's a very precious thing, this mm-hmm. trust that we have. Um, it goes to the deepest heart of what makes, I think, makes us human and mutual. Um, and when it's betrayed, it feels devastating because it questions our own judgment about what we thought we knew about the person sitting next to us or how we should be in the world. And I suppose that's what this case did, not just because, not just of the perpetrator, but everybody who was involved in it in the organisational sense. 
and language itself came into question. Mm. And yet the lesson you don't take from this is that one, you know, you were, people were wrong to trust, that the sort of like the trust is that, that you know, we should, we should have less trust in our lives. In, in a sense, the, it seems that if there is, if there, if there is a way to begin to, to, to deconstruct and rebuild, then it has to, it has to be founded on trust in some way. Yeah, it has to be founded on the idea that we can make a different world by reclaiming a sense of community and mutuality that crosses structural and systemic boundaries and borders of all sorts of different kinds. That when we see the state building prisons by any other name for people who are seeking refuge, processing them by flying them hundreds of miles away to... Rwanda, wherever, which is like today's news mm. in the UK, that we stand up and say that isn't okay with us because we don't want to believe this narrative that all of these young men are coming here to kind of do demonic things because and that mm. narrative is very, very specific to people coming from certain countries that have majority Muslim populations. It's so important that we begin to deconstruct this idea of Islamophobia that's become so pervasive and it's only, and it's being perpetrated in India under Modi, um, it's being perpetrated here under Priti Patel's um, own very, very similar. There's lots of confluences in the kinds of fascism that we that we have here and what's happened in India, mm-hmm. and so on. You know, like I trust, I I trust in people's ways of thinking about mutuality that don't include supremacy, that don't include the need that I'm going to do this because I'm going to save you. But I'm mm. going to do this because it's the right thing to do and put you on your feet and then I'm not in charge of what happens next. Mm. You know? We're um we're almost out of time, but one thing I would like to talk about just before we finish, um, um, which you you kind of made reference to right near the beginning of our conversation, was the sort of the um I suppose the the strength might be the word, solace might be the word, I'm not sure, I'm, 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 I'm sort of grasping a little bit for it, um, that you were able to find among certain, certain writers. Uh, one thing that readers of Aftermath will, will notice is that this is, uh, I mean, it's at once very much your book, but there's also something kind of choric about it. There's so many quotes, there's so much sort of, um, so many references to to other writers and their and and the and other works which have um sort of informed your thinking and helped your thinking and um sort of helped lead you i guess to a to a to a to an understanding of um of uh of the, of the situation and and that was something i found very uh, refreshing actually which is i think i think often um in in books you'll find sort of you know not exactly that the sort of the 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 influences are sort of go unacknowledged, but there is a certain sort of perhaps sometimes ego from the writer to try and sort of present themselves as being the kind of the authority. the originator of the authority, right. quite. And one thing that's so wonderful about Aftermath is that it feels like, in some ways, a kind of a group endeavor. Oh, thank you so much for saying that, because, you know, citation is a form of political and aesthetic practice to me, and it comes out of, you know, the reading of black women, um, Mm -hmm. writing about um, mutuality and civil rights struggle, and also um, intertextuality is like the form 
aesthetic form which through which I marry the ethics and politics of my work and the same is true in my first novel We That Are Young which is a very intertextual mm. novel it's got quotations from Kabir and um, all sorts of different kind of revolutionary poets and so on and other writers because I want to make those links through that craft tool which is very open to fiction writers and poets and prose fiction writers prose poetry writers um, of making community on the page and saying mm. this has genealogy, this comes out of a tradition. I acknowledge and weave together my voice into that tradition. For, you know, I want I want to show that mm. that it doesn't come again from nothing. It comes from a context, a literary context that may not be valued by you know the upper echelons of literary society, mm. but it matters, and it's a and a writing for resistance that can only be done in community. So aesthetically, I want mm. to put you know my voice on the page alongside all of these writers who have made me and acknowledge that that um, these arguments have been made and made and made and made and this is another iteration of that and that is a politics um in my own mm -hmm. practice yeah I, I just just before we finish um there was one uh, one moment where you cite actually uh, last week's guest on the podcast, which is uh, Alejandro Zambra. Oh, yeah. Um, and he talks about um, books that say no to literature. Um, and that felt like such a perfect encapsulation of what Aftermath is doing in a way. It's a sort of, it's it feels such a kind of sort of an, anti-literature book and by which you know by anti i don't mean sort of you know necessarily unlike um books that people you know I typically consider uh literature but like it just seems to be operating in a sort of a fundamentally different direction and uh and following sort of fundamentally different criteria thank you so much and that's absolutely right i mean i love alejandro's work um particularly that book not to read and, um, mm -hmm. you know, this idea of saying, no, I have this like resonant no deep inside me. And it's happened all through my life where I've been told, no, you no, you can't go into that room. No, you can't take your place at this table. No, you can't um, be published in this way and so on. And I just don't care. I will go round. I will find ways to say yes to something else that comes out mm -hmm. of a hybridity and a multiplicity and a way of being in the world that just feels more honest to me. as true to the complexity that I encapsulate as somebody who's an experiment that's come out of empire into mm -hmm. this landscape of whiteness where I've been grown and learned how to write and speak and so on. I'm going to take everything that I have had to previously hold divided as a young person and make it resonant in its intertextuality again on the page and just say no. Um, mm. Impolitely a way of saying, you know, I don't want to swear on your podcast. <laughs> um, I think I you're very welcome. It's like saying, what do you have to lose by doing the difficult work in the way that feels true to you with the one life that you have? Mm -hmm. Say yes to that. Yeah. Say yes to that. Yeah. Pretty, that feels like a perfect place on which to, to leave it. Um, Aftermath is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company. It's um, available from our bricks and mortar store. It's available from our website. It's also available from uh, your local independent bookstore, wherever wherever that may be. In um, it's been out in the United States for a while now. It's just been released in um, in the UK, so it should be uh, you should be able to get your your hands on it. It is, as I said at the, at the beginning, and I hope it's come across in this conversation, such a an extraordinary book and such an important book. Um, 
And I feel very privileged to have had the opportunity to talk with you about it today. So Kriti, thank you so much for coming on the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>